Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anu Nipadier, and thanks for joining us. Today we talk to Kimball Parker, president of 650, the technology subsidiary of top law firm Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. Early in his legal career, Kimball faced a personal example of how the legal system's labyrinth-like complexity is harming millions of people who cannot afford attorneys. This led to a fascinating career as a legal tech founder interested in ways to increase access to legal information and services. We talk about how severe the access to justice gap in the legal industry really is and how technology and automation can help provide a solution. Now in his role at the helm of 650, he is able to create and provide solutions with minimal attorney time spent. He also discusses collaborations with legal design labs at law schools and how they can contribute to addressing the severe gap between the supply of attorney time and the immense need for legal services. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Kimball, thanks so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Kimball, a lot of our guests know you as the leader, the president of 650. And we're going to get into what 650 is. I mean, it's a technology subsidiary of the famous Silicon Valley firm, Wilson Sonsini. And we're going to get into all of the work that, that 650 does and that you do with 650. But you have a very interesting backstory, a very interesting resume with respect to legal technology and and your work since you graduated from UChicago School of Law. I want to get into that. I want to get into the the work that you've done. And so can you give us a kind of a brief introduction to Kimball Parker? What have you done and, and what are the ideas that you've had in legal technology since you graduated from law school not long ago? Yeah, so I graduated from the University of Chicago. My first job out of law school was uh, working for the, the litigation firm, Quinn Emanuel. And so I really did some very complex, complicated, very demanding litigation for several years. And while at Quinn, I had a really interesting experience. One of my friends went through a round at Y Combinator. He formed a really interesting company that could splice videos. Anyway, he made it out of Y Combinator. He was about to raise money, and his former company sued him for breach of fiduciary duty. And so he, he actually had me over for dinner to tell me all about it because I was like the only lawyer that he knew. And it was really, really interesting. He was completely panicked. He had no idea what to do. And I, I had just, just tried a breach of fiduciary duty case, a big case involving a big pharmaceutical company. And so it was interesting hearing kind of him talk about that. You know, he, he really was completely lost. This is one of the smartest people I have ever known in my life. And he couldn't figure out breach of fiduciary duty, which is like a four-part test. It's one of the easiest tests in the law. Right. And so that experience really opened my, my eyes to how inaccessible the law is to people. And really, ever since then, I've just been fascinated with this issue of, of the complexity of the law. And I've kind of tried to address that issue in, in, in different ways kind of throughout Two questions on that. So can you explain to, to our listeners, first of all, what is Y Combinator? You said YC. Give us a kind of a primer on that. And the second point I'll make is that we recently had on a guest from a company that I'm sure you're familiar with named Atrium. And he mentioned that a lot of startups and in fact, 
his co-founders earlier startups were involuntary power users of law firms. And it sounds like it sounds like the person that you were talking to who ran this video splicing company was one of those people. So start with what is Y Combinator and was that your, your friend's experience as he kind of became embroiled in this litigation that he very likely did not invite? Y Combinator, if I understand it right, it's the most prestigious or one of the most prestigious incubators of kind of startups in the world. And in fact, I think Casex got its start at Y Combinator, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken there, but you apply as a very low acceptance rate. And then basically you go into this incubator that's here in the Bay Area and they help you develop your idea and link you with investors. This friend's technology was so cool. Basically it would it would automatically sync and cut video for you and then and then link it into music that was in your computer. It was like the coolest technology ever. You tried to explain it to me. I didn't understand anything that he was saying. And, and so that's kind of him. And I think I think he was definitely an, an involuntary user, uh, power user of, of the law. I mean, he, he was sued. So, you know, he, he had to respond. He, he ended up using his corporate counsel, which ironically was Wilson Sonsini, which is where I am now. But it's this interesting issue where I think a lot of the, the, the access to, to justice conversation is about like, oh, gosh, people who don't have money, they have no shot. And I think that, you know, I kind of understood that, you know, like very low sophisticated parties, maybe, for example, may not have graduated from high school or, you know, maybe don't speak fluent English, that those, those parties, sure, I always understood that they would have a hard time with the law. I think it was it just was eye-opening to see like a very, very capable first percentile of, of intelligence I would consider a person that I know who who struggled with it. I, I guess I just could not believe that. You know, he had tried to go into Stanford and like research from the books and he could not find he could not figure out this area of law that 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 really was so, so easy. I really have thought about that experience ever since. I think, you know, the first thing that I did to, to try to like think about that idea and, and to see if I could make a dent in it was to create this crowdsourcing software called CoCouncil. The idea behind that was like, hey, maybe we can crowdsource areas of law like fiduciary duty and maybe add some visualization tools to it and like make it accessible to people so that my friend, at least like somebody can, can be able to grasp those concepts that was an interesting project. It didn't really go anywhere. Was your goal in founding co-counsel and, and making a run at that, was the objective to kind of, in a way, make an end run around lawyers for certain problems, right? I mean, law is intentionally overcomplicated. I mean, that might ruffle some feathers, right? But I think it is. I think it's intentionally overcomplicated. It's a guild profession, right? And it's very much a profession that's based on protecting the people who learn the trade and learn the skill and learn the language and keeping everyone else out, right? Because in a lot of ways, that is the business model, right? And so was your kind of approach to this to say, hey, let's make it so that a very, very smart but not legally trained person can access legal services and access legal knowledge in a, in a kind of a, a, an easy way? Was that the approach? Yeah, it was. And the idea was like, look, I have, for example, fiduciary duty. I've already looked into that area. I actually could probably map that in like half an hour and share that piece of knowledge. You know, I think that the idea was like, hey, let's try to get lawyers from all across the nation to share this research that they've already done 
and it would benefit lawyers. You know, they, they wouldn't have to retread these areas that, that, that people have researched over and over and over again. And let's like share some of this knowledge and we can make it easier for, for people to access. I think what I actually probably the most valuable thing that I got from that is that trying to make legal principles accessible, I don't think is actually that valuable because that's not really where the rubber hits the road. Like, let's say, let's take my friend, even if he had known what those four factors were, he still would have had to create a massive amount of paperwork where papers are generated, where documents are made. That's where the rubber hits the road for access to justice issues. And so someone actually told me that. And, and I really started thinking about that. And it really is true. I mean, you can teach people principles all you want all day long. It's only going to get them like 5% of the way there. If you create a document for them, it's going to get them pretty far, if not all the way there on that specific piece. That kind of insight is what then got me into kind of this, this other stuff that I've been doing, which has been kind of more document focused. But, but I think the big theme really is like the, the, the law is way too inaccessible. And I, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's horrifying. In Utah, for example, which is where I'm from and where I live now, only one out of seven cases involve a lawyer, a side with a lawyer versus another side with a lawyer. That's only one out of seven, which means that six out of seven of those cases either have a lawyer versus a non-lawyer or a non-lawyer versus a non-lawyer. But if you look at the rules and you look at all the cases, it's so clear that this system is set up for lawyer versus lawyer. I mean, what other system in the world is set up for one-seventh of the use cases? I love that perspective. I mean, one of the things that we talk about on, on this podcast from time to time is how everyone could agree, as you mentioned, right, that there is a major access to justice gap among some of the poorest and least educated, least privileged folks in this country, right? A lot of people who need the legal services the most, everyone could agree that they deserve legal services, and a lot of, of American pro bono focuses on them. I think it's also agreed upon that we don't do enough and we need to really, really ramp up pro bono. But there's consensus across the board that those are folks that need legal services. I think what's missed and I think what you're getting at with the example of your friend who is an educated guy, is a fairly privileged person who has a Stanford degree and is really smart, is the fact that a huge amount of even the middle class, upper middle class in this country still can't access the legal system, right? So all the way from some of the, the most desperate folks in the United States, all the way up to some people who make fairly decent money and have fairly high stakes, high value problems, either can't afford a lawyer or simply can't interact with the system sufficiently to secure a lawyer. And I'm fascinated by what you just said in that statistic. Where are we going next with that? And what are you working on to you know, solve that, that particular problem? I mean, we've had on other guests who've said, well, one solution is to make products that can represent clients. Another one is make a chat bot or some sort of automated system that could assist new clients. Another one yet is to make the system of representation to change it rather so that attorneys can make money off of representing middle-class families who have been damaged to the tune of five to $10,000, right? They can make money in the middle-class family will have representation. I mean, how are you approaching this and in what way are you attempting to uh, attack this kind of common problem? 
I think there are two ways that I've kind of thought about the issue. The first is like, you could think, let's change the rules. I mean, these rules are way too complicated. They're developed for lawyers in a system where the majority of people don't have lawyers, which makes no sense. And so let's change those rules. So I've, I've gone down that path. That is fraught with difficulty. The, the bureaucracy in these courts is incredible. And their distaste for kind of innovative solutions is unbelievable. There are some states who are making headway. You know, Utah actually is one of them who's trying to rethink the laws. But, I, you know, honestly, I think that the rules are so messed up that it would take a complete overhaul. I mean, I think that the rules need to be thought up again from scratch. These laws and, and these rules have been developed by lawyers for decades. One reason why the, these rules reflect that one-seventh of a use case, again, is because lawyers make these rules. There aren't non-lawyers on the rules committee making rules, right? And so with zero representation in these rules for people who can't afford attorneys, of course, they're going to sway heavily towards parties who have attorneys. So that's one way is maybe you can go and change the rules to make it kind of a simplified process. The other way is to just take the system as it is, as terrible and horrible as, as all those rules are, and then to try to develop solutions around it. Now, there's some really interesting things going on in this space. You know, Paladin is a really interesting company. They, like, help aggregate pro bono and help firms kind of work on pro bono more efficiently. I'll tell you kind of where I come down is that, you know, for example, I, I looked at Utah. Every lawyer in Utah would have to more than double their output for free, and that wouldn't even cover the amount of cases that run through the system without a lawyer. I mean – like these, these pro bono efforts from law firms, it's like a drop in the ocean. I think people maybe underestimate how big this problem is. For example, in Utah, there were 70,000 debt collection cases in some years. That's just debt collection. That's just one area of law. 99% of those people who are sued do not hire an attorney. So that's 70,000. There are only 8,000 lawyers in Utah. Each lawyer is going to take 10 extra cases just to cover that one area of law, it's like you, you, you can't even get close, right? And that's assuming every single lawyer does that. I mean, there has to be, there has to be major exponential efficiency gains here to, to cover it, right? The way that I've thought about it is, is through automation. So I'm the director of LawX, which is a legal design lab at, at BYU. And we looked at this debt collection issue. 70,000 cases where people don't have an attorney in, in Utah for debt collection, that, that's insane. To add to that, I mean, these are these are likely folks who are, a lot of them are probably in fairly desperate situations, right? I mean, oftentimes uh, the people who need the lawyers the most cannot get them for whatever reason, right? And this seems to be a perfect example of that. Yeah, so those people, those are very uns unsophisticated parties. They, they've only had bad experiences with the law. And so how do you help them? And so we, we developed this out of, we basically developed like TurboTax for answering a, a debt collection complaint. Basically, like if you don't answer a complaint, a, a debt collection lawsuit within 21 days, you automatically lose. And some years, up to 80% of people who are sued for a debt in Utah just lose. They don't even try to answer because it's so incredibly complicated. And so we developed like TurboTax for a debt collection answer to help people at least get past that first step. We released it. We have more uses in a month than we expected in the entire year. And it's, it's continued to have heavy use. 
And so that was kind of our first foray into like, oh, geez, we, you know, we thought documents were important, helping people create legal documents. And that was kind of our first proof of concept with kind of low, a very low sophisticated group, a group of people. It was incredibly uh, rewarding, but I think more things like that need to happen. That's excellent. I, let, let me get back to, I'm viewing your, your background so far post-law school as kind of in two big buckets at this point, right? I mean, you, you practiced law, you be, became sophisticated as to how the law is practiced at one of the premier litigation firms in the world, Quinn Emanuel, and then you moved on to co-counsel. And at some point you decided that this co-counsel idea wasn't the kind of silver bullet solution. At what point did you move on to 650? And what did you do in between co-counsel and 650? So after co-counsel, I moved back to Utah. I worked for kind of a mid-sized firm called Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer. But when I moved back, the dean of BYU's law school contacted me and said, hey, you know, we're thinking about starting a legal design lab. And, you know, he had used co-counsel. One of the big uses of, of co-counsel actually ended up being kind of professors. And they would map out an, an area of law with their class. So we had, we, we had a whole bunch of professors who, who did that. One of them was Gordon Smith down at BYU. Two things that you, you raised, I want, I want you to kind of flesh out a bit. Uh, you know, we've, we've referred to co-counsel a couple of times, and you've mentioned that it's a crowdsourced legal research tool. Can you talk about, you know, exactly what kind of content was in it, how it worked? I mean, despite the fact that it didn't end up going anywhere, I know it as a, a tool that was really interesting, really cool. And as you just mentioned, it had some super fans, namely some law school professors. What was it and how did you build it or how was it built? Yeah, so basically the platform allowed users to map out visually areas of law. And so you could, you could kind of see like how the logic would branch. Like, okay, this area of law has four factors. And then, you know, this one factor has two sub-factors. And then, you know, there were kind of easy explanations for, well, we tried to make them as, as easy as possible, but for people to understand. But then users could go on and they could add, they could add whatever they wanted. They could branch out the logic, add explanations, add cases, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think initially we kind of hoped like, okay, you know, hopefully lawyers will, will use this. No lawyers used it. Basically like one lawyer ever used that tool. But a whole bunch of law school professors used it. I guess the way we pitched it to them was like, okay, this is a way that you can add a visual element to your learning. And, and then all that learning that's done, you kind of share with the greater community and it does a social good too. Gosh, I think at one point we had like 15 classes going all across the world. We, we had like a class in Reading, England that I visited. There was like a professor in Columbia who wanted to map stuff and, and tons of professors all over the, the uh, United States. Is the site so, currently up? Our listeners wanted to go and, and kind of click around on ProCouncil. Uh, is it uh -huh. still up in any, in any iteration or have you yeah. taken it down since? It is. I've, I've tried to take it down numerous times, actually because I'm still paying for server fees, but we, we still have groups. So people still use it. There's actually several, several professors that add stuff almost every day. And so I really have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this thing. I've tried to give it away numerous times, but people keep using it. Our, our real power users still love it. Yeah. And so if you can go on, you can browse some areas of law and you can create an account and build your own map of, of the law if you want. Got it. No, that, that sounds great. You know, the, the second thing I wanted to raise is you said that the dean at BYU Law 
give you a phone call. And he was clearly he and his colleagues there at BYU Law were users of co-counsel. He invited you to lead a quote legal design lab. Now I have an idea. I have an idea of what legal design lab means, but I don't have a firm idea of what legal design lab means. What is a legal design lab, and what are the kind of goals and objectives of a legal design lab? Let me tell you the advantage of calling something a legal design lab. It's basically those words mean nothing, okay? And so you can make a legal design lab whatever you want. And so kind of when we when we thought, okay, let's make a legal design lab, what we kind of thought was, okay. I looked around in the field of legal design labs. I mean, it's a very robust field. There's lots of, lots of schools have legal design labs. They're, they're doing you know, really interesting things. When we looked at it, we thought, okay, you know, one way that we could really improve this space, we thought, was by actually releasing a product. A lot of the design labs kind of talked about stuff. They like created a lot of visuals, which actually was really helpful and really interesting. And, and so we kind of thought, you know what, we're gonna like release something. So we're going to take an area of the law where we think people get screwed. And we're going to try to make that area of the law more fair. And we're going to try to do it in one term. So we're going to release a product with a group of students in, in one term. So, and we call that Law X. That was, that was the name of our legal design lab. That's amazing work. I think time boxing it to a semester is powerful, right? I mean, I think likely you learned this from, from your experience with co-counsel, but you can make a big difference as short as a semester. I mean, before you go into the actual work that your group at BYU Law did, why don't you think this has caught on more at more law schools? Imagine the impact if even one-tenth of the law schools in America came to the table with similar kind of legal design labs guided by the mission of pumping out a product every semester that can actually help people in need? I think it's catching on, you know, so we, our first product was kind of debt collection, which, which I've talked about. You know, the next year, the University of Arizona Design Lab reached out, and so we're collaborating on a tool that actually we're gonna release with 650 in like a month and a half, which is a tool to help people who are being evicted. That's a similar profile of people as those who are, who are being sued for a debt, it's, it's kind of, a lot of them are low income, kind of low sophistication. A lot of them don't maybe speak very good English and who just get hosed by the legal system, completely dominated by, by more sophisticated parties. And so we're releasing a tool to kind of help them for, for this semester. I think the University of Arizona with a really great professor, Stacy Butler, who's completely underappreciated, actually. I think she's fantastic and nobody knows a lot about her, but her class and my class kind of tackle that together. Next year, we're going to do something else. You know, we're thinking about maybe helping with expungement. You know, people who have things on their record from when they were 18 and they went streaking with their friends, but now they can't get a job. Or who, have, who were charged with a crime and then found not guilty, but that charge is still on their record. Kimball, I love, I love this. And just two shout outs here. I love the idea of scaling pro bono through products or platforms and you already mentioned Paladin. We've had on Felicity Conrad on this podcast. She was a guest, uh, I think, season one. And we've also had a fellow named, and, and hopefully I, I'm pronouncing his name right, Matthew Steubenberg, who you know was a member of MD Expungement, right? And I love both of these organizations because in the case of Felicity's organization, Paladin, she's creating platforms 
that allow firms to better find pro bono cases, right? Scalable, you know, the pro bono work is done still kind of hand to hand and person to person, but it's a scalable platform that she could cast a wide net across all law firms in the US. And of course, with Steubenberg's platform, and again, apologies if, if I mispronounced his name, who also was a guest on this podcast, is a product that actually kind of, I think, does the same with expungements in Maryland as your group did with debt collection in, in Utah. But I love the idea of pro bono that doesn't just take students and have them kind of help out, you know, a certain minority group or a certain, you know, underprivileged group in a certain area, right? Because you might be able to help what? 20 people at a time, 30 people at a time if you help them all day. But the work that you're doing and the work that BYU Law and, and University of Arizona and other groups are doing can literally help out tens of thousands of people. I mean, that is the promise of productizing, right? I mean, that's that's like the, the you know, it, it makes me, as you can probably, probably tell by my level of excitement, I mean, this is something I think that can truly change, you know, representation for indigent clients. I'm, I'm very you know, I think it's doing the Lord's work. <laughs> I don't think that's that's uh, overstating it. How do we get more of that out there? How do we get more, you know, pro bono organizations and law schools and coders, you know, circled around this mission? I think there need to be some good proofs of concept. Let me tell you one, one thing we're going to do at 650. I worked a law firm. I know exactly how pro bono works. Basically, let me go back to my firm in Utah. We helped with debt collection cases. And it was like, people would do the same thing every time without any kind of process to make it more efficient. And it's like, geez, Louise, instead of doing that 20 times from scratch, why don't you do it one time and automate it so then 10,000 people can use it, just, and just, and just like you're saying. And so, and so at Wilson, we're going to pick areas of law where Wilson has an expertise. Let's say asylum. Wilson, Sonsini does a lot of asylum help. And we're going to take it and we're going to automate as much of the asylum process as we can. And then we're going to give that away. So any firm who wants to use that asylum tool so that they can process cases 50 times faster will be able to use that, that software. I think pe people need to do it and kind of see that, that, that it works and kind of see the impact of it. I got a taste of it through, through BYU. That debt collection software has helped over a thousand people in little Utah. You do something like that and you think, gosh, I want to do that all day. That's all I want to do. I love it. And so you, we're now at 650 and this is one of your current roles. Talk about 650. I mean, what what is it, right? What, what is it as a business uh, entity or, or a kind of a corporate entity? What is its relationship to Wilson Sonsini? Is it meant to be kind of a pure pro bono organization? I mean, talk us through what its goals are, how it's organized, all of those things. Yeah, so let me tell you why I, I was really interested in this position. There are some areas of law, actually a lot of areas, where Wilson is arguably the best. They are the best law firm in the world. For example, they incorporated Google and brought them public. They incorporated Twitter and brought them public. You know, th there were two IPOs in Utah last year. They brought both of those companies public. They, they are the best technology law firm in the world, right? And so the thought... That, that you could take that knowledge base, which is arguably the best in the world, and then automate it so that not just Google can use something like that, so that like a little company in South Carolina could benefit from that expertise. 
is so thrilling. It's the same issue. It's, it really is the same issue that I've been thinking about, you know, for the past four, five years, which is how do you distill the best ex expertise in an area and make it available to not just the absolute most wealthy? How, how do you distill an area and, and make it available again to a company that's in Georgia? That's what we're doing. 650 is, it's, it's fully owned by the firm, but it's, it, it's a different entity. And we're going to take areas of law where Wilson is the best. And we're going to automate those areas so that anybody can use them. Our first project is in relation to the new California privacy law. California passed, passed a recent law. Any company that makes over $25 million in revenue and does business in California has to comply. And this is very complex. So some estimates from people who we trust have kind of said, well, average price to comply going through a firm like Wilson Sonsini, are, are gonna, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe over $250,000. And so you, you think about that. You're like, goodness sakes, how is a company that makes $25 million in revenue going to pay $250,000 or, or $100,000 to comply with a law that they just learned about five days ago? I mean, a lot of companies are going to be in a really bad shape, and the penalties for this law are severe, company-ending in some circumstances. And so what, what we're doing, and I think kind of it fits in with this mission, is we've taken the privacy group. The, the, the head of the privacy group held arguably the top post in, in, the, in the U.S. government for privacy for eight years. And another person was, was a top privacy advisor in the White House during the Obama, Obama administration. I mean, these are the best privacy minds in the nation, and we're going to automate their knowledge so that anybody can use it and at a price point that they can afford. Right, right. You know, 10 years ago, I think the, maybe 15, the appropriate question would have been, <laughs> you know, for me to, in a shocked way, say, but Kimball, why would they want to give away for free what they're currently getting paid for, right? And I think nowadays, a lot of our listeners and a lot of other kind of sophisticated people out there kind of get what's happening here, right? That more and more uh, clients expect to get the kind of basic stuff for free and the money that Wilson Sonsini as the kind of worldwide specialists in this particular area, the money they will get are with the kind of complexities and the wrinkles in the operation, right? Is that a good distillation of the, of the kind of business, the, the business concepts underpinning 650? Actually, no. This is not a lead gen play here. This, this is not thinking we're gonna offer this for free and then people are gonna come into the firm and, and use the firm, totally not. The idea behind this is like only a small percentage maybe let's say 5% or 10% of the market can even use Wilson Sunsea. And so there's that 90% of the market that would love to have Wilson Sunsea expertise, but can't pay the full price. And so this is, this is a play for those 90%. What we're saying is, listen, don't try to go at this alone and do it by yourself. It's probably going to cost you more and it's going to be very risky. And, and listen, don't use a small firm who doesn't know what they're doing. Right. This is massively expanding the pie. I, I think that's a very good articulation of it. Massive. It's like you use, you know, any company now will be able to tap into Wilson Sonsini's world leading expertise for less than it would cost at a small law firm. I mean, I think we're trying to make Wilson Sonsini's expertise 
and put it at a price point that anyone can afford, any company. It represents, I mean, two different products, if you will, that Wilson Sunstein is putting out on the market, right? I mean, you've got your top end product, right? And that is the actual time and experience of Wilson Sonsini attorneys in real time, dedicated to the one thing, right? That Google and Twitter and others can afford. And then you've got your other kind of product line, again, if you will, product line, that is your your kind of mass market product line that anyone can, can afford. I mean, is that a better way of looking at it? That's it. We think we've priced it so that basically any company we can talk to and we can, we can help them comply for a, for a very reasonable cost. You know, a cost, again, that is going to be like a tenth, maybe even more smaller of, of a fraction that it would cost to kind of get it in, in another way. But by lowering that price point, you're not sacrificing quality, we think. We built this tool in conjunction with the Wilson-Sonsini Privacy Group. I mean, People who use our tool are going to get Wilson Sonsini quality product for a price that they can afford. At a price that they can afford. I, I like that. Now, do you view this as, as, you know, the president, the leader of 650, do you kind of view this as a, as a product startup within Wilson Sonsini or a product startup that is aided by Wilson Sonsini? I mean, are you and is 650 graded on the revenue you could generate from the product. You know, how do you know in 10 years if 650 has knocked the ball out of the park or is just doing kind of okay? I mean, we're, we're going to be judged on our revenue. This is a startup that's funded by the firm. It's, it's fully funded by the firm, but it's a startup. I mean, we're going to have to make money. This really is not a business development play. Again, this is a play to attack that 90% of the market who would love to use top tier legal services but can't afford it. And, you know, along the way, when we're creating kind of the, the, this automation software, we're also go going to attack pro bono issues for free. But our real judge of success from, from the firm's point of view is, gonna, is going to be revenue and profits. And so we're running like a startup would. And, you know, we have small teams and everybody's doing everything sort of deal, just like, you know, Castex is running or, you know, was, was running a few, a few years ago before you guys expanded and now you guys have so many people here now, but but yeah, it's it's we're going to be judged just like any other startup. So who do you view uh, as a competitor to Six Fifty, or are, are there currently no competitors to to Six Fifty? Well, I think I think there are competitors in the different areas that we attack. For example, you know, so take this California privacy law. Companies have to comply by January first, twenty twenty. They have a few choices. They can go to a law firm. So, you know, law firms are, are our competitors. We think we have a great value proposition against them. We think that we're going to be a lot cheaper, a lot more efficient, and a lot more convenient, just a better experience overall, we think, in basically every way. They, they also can use a vendor. There's kind of some, some technology vendors who, who try to attack this issue, but they don't have kind of the, the backing and the expertise of a law firm who, who are the top experts in the field in it. So we think we have a great value proposition against them as well. Now, you know, when we move into different areas of law, we're going to have different competitors. You know, it's going to depend which areas we, we choose to attack. But, but we really think that, 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 that we have a very compelling value proposition no matter what area we go into. Again, these companies are going to get Wilson Sonsini top quality things for less, faster, and just, just a, better, a better experience.
You know, if I'm uh, playing devil's advocate here, I'd say, well, that's fair and well that you get Wilson Sonsini brand on it. But ultimately, if you're using a product and there's no attorney directly involved and everything goes sideways, if I have an attorney, even a kind of a, a, a low rent kind of local attorney who might not be doing a great job, that attorney still has a malpractice insurance plan, right? A policy. And I could go after that, that malpractice policy, you know, in case that they, they, they totally screw up. What do they do if they follow guidance by a, a Wilson Sonsini kind of product, like a product kit on how to comply with this California privacy law? And they just do everything wrong. I mean, isn't that a big fear of clients? And isn't that a big reason why clients don't like using the product at times and want to go directly to the very expensive at times attorney? So a couple of things on that. The first is that, you know, we're not going to offer any legal advice. We're not a law firm. So we can't really offer legal advice like a law firm could. We do have privacy professionals who can kind of help people navigate the software and help them think about issues that are kind of raised by our automation software to help people comply. But a lot of these companies, I think, could also use a lawyer on top of the software. So even if you use the software and then you take the, the kind of outputs from that software and then run it by a law firm, it's still going to be significantly cheaper because you're not going to pay for all of that groundwork. You're not going to pay $1,000 an hour or $600 an hour for that groundwork. It's going to be kind of a flat price. And then if you want to have somebody else kind of look over it, that's great. And actually, you can have Wilson look over it. And, and we've kind of created a, a, a seamless experience into Wilson's, into, into Wilson's firm if, if that's what people want. I think that could be the, the future of you know, how legal work is, is completed, right? I mean, imagine a system where you know, you're a middle-class family and this middle-class family where hiring a lawyer before might be a $25,000 endeavor, doing a lot of the legwork based on a product, whether it's whatever product Wilson Sonsini puts out or even something like LegalZoom or some sort of product like that, and really doing a lot of the work that you can do, kind of narrowing down the project, and then coming to an attorney with a very discreet uh, piece Absolutely. of work for them to do can maybe take that $25,000 project and narrow it into a $5,000 project, which is now all of a sudden affordable from the middle-class family and doable by the attorney at a profit. I mean, is that where this is all going? Yeah. For example, I talked with, with a lawyer who, who wasn't at Wilson Sonsini, but a lawyer at another firm who, who does startup work. And he was saying, I, I have my associates do all of this kind of grunt work, and then I look at the docs for one hour. And this, you know, experience, very seasoned, well-respected startup work. But he only needed an hour with those docs, right? So what if you just cut out that other crap and you just had him look at it for an hour? That's one way that, that, that we kind of hope this goes. Like, let's only use humans where humans are needed. Let's not use humans for something that, that a machine can do. Don't have a law firm charge you $700 an hour to format a document or to put someone's name in this place and put their address in another place. No, a machine can do that, right? A machine can templatize and, and plug that information in. You shouldn't pay those types of rates for that, but that's oftentimes what, what you're paying for. What a business should pay for is that hour, right? Is that hour of expertise and, and kind of the underlying expertise that fuels, the, fuels the, the entire enterprise. And so I think that's 
I think where, where we can kind of come in through the CCPA, we will do all that legwork. And I think for a lot of companies, I think that they'll be fine with that and don't necessarily need to need to see an attorney afterwards. We're very confident in, in, in what we're providing. Although if they do want to see an attorney, which is completely understandable, and we will, we will link them with one, we would love that, then that attorney is not going to do all of that underlying groundwork, right? It's all there for them. What would take tens, hundreds of hours of, of associate time getting everything right, we can do for a flat, reasonable fee. And then sure. And then, and then if you want the guy or top privacy woman in the field to look at it, that's great. But they'll only need to look at it for a very short amount of time. And you're going to save a lot of money. Have you gotten any blowback as the kind of head of products coming out of, of Wilson-Sonsini or with the Wilson-Sonsini name? I mean, without naming names at Wilson-Sonsini, have you heard any grumblings from Wilson-Sonsini affiliated people essentially saying, really, is that the right move for Wilson-Sonsini? We're a wildly successful firm with a storied legacy in Silicon Valley are you sure we don't want to just keep riding this success and providing legal services at a fairly high dollar amount? Why stick our necks out and create 650? Maybe just leave that to someone else and keep enjoying the success in legal services and hourly billing that we've been enjoying for decades. So I think, I think Wilson's MCD really is, is uniquely situated to, take, to, to do something like this. First of all, Wilson advises the most innovative, disruptive companies in the world. And so this is a firm that is very familiar with taking chances and really trying to attack and rethink an industry. And let, so let me tell you, we've had zero blowback, zero. We, we have only gotten full-hearted support for this effort within the firm. I, I've been amazed at it. And so, yeah, again, I think Wilson is really a unique firm, a very client-centric. We're going to try to make the experience as good as possible for the client type of firm. And so I think that this, this really fits in perfectly with them. And we're doing things that they've thought about. I, I think one, one reason why they're so open to this idea and why they kind of approached us to do it is because they had been thinking about doing something like this before. They kind of seen our work in other areas and thought, okay, this is maybe the team that they could make it happen. You know, long story short, absolutely not, no blowback at all there. I think people are very, very excited. How about from associates? Are any associates sweating the fact that, and I think I know the answer to this, having been an associate at a, a, larger, a larger firm, are any associates uh, kind of uh, looking at you for your ground saying, hey, is this, is this the guy who's going to be taking my job? No, 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 no. I think there's always going to be a place for Wilson Sonsini. Even if the whole law is automated, Wilson Sonsini is going to be there. Because, again, you know, Wilson does the top tier, best 99th percentile work. I think if I were an associate at a smaller firm, I think I think I'd be sweating. Or if I were a partner at a smaller firm, I think that I'd be sweating because I just can't understand how they could compare with our value proposition. Once once we have this product, really, I mean, people are going to be able to get Wilson's and Sonsini quality things. I mean, I think this play really endangers and is potentially disruptive for kind of medium-sized, smaller firms. I think that's, that's the market we're going for. We're going to try to steal them. We're not going to try to steal the, the clients that are already with the firm. They're ingrained in there and are doing kind of probably too complicated of things. Sure. No, that makes sense. So you mentioned that right now your focus is 
this CCPA product, what's coming next? I mean, are you going to go kind of down the line of the products that you could create that will have the biggest impact across the startup world coast to coast? I mean, how do you choose the products that you're going to be building next and what's coming uh, down the pike? So yeah, we're releasing the CCPA product in the coming months. So that'll be our first one. It'll be publicly available kind of end of May, June. Then we're going, we're going to release a free product that, that we developed with BYU for people who are being evicted. And so that's kind of just pro bono access to justice targeted. After that, we're looking in, into some other areas. We, we, we have a bunch of ideas, but we, we haven't like settled on our next like let's make money product. But, but we have some really good leads, and we'll probably come out with that in the fall or early next year. And so what do you, what do you view as the future of automation in legal? It's an intentionally broad question, but I mean, we've talked about some of the foundations and underpinnings. I mean, we have a world where law schools can, can kind of mobilize their classes to release tools that will have a kind of general appeal and be able to help a lot of the, the least privileged folks in society. We have, you know, big law firms that are kind of creating tools to expand the pie and claim more of it. You know, there, there's other subsidiaries, of course, you know, I mean, one of them is uh, Gravity Stack associated with Reed Smith, who's managing director, Brian Gratcher has been on our podcast. There's groups like Atrium that I referred to before that are attempting to unify product teams and law firms to create products that folks could use across the board. I mean, what's coming up next? I mean, in 10 years, what will be uh, the interaction between a legal services provider and a client? I think it'll be a mix of kind of machine and human. That's where I think that this is going. You know, we kind of touched on this before. I think that the real potential there is getting the efficiency and time savings and accuracy of a machine with with the benefit of human judgment. I think, you know, 650 is kind of going that way. Atrium maybe is going that way too. That's really where, where the future of the law is. It's, it's, it's marrying those two things. One kind of interesting th- thing about automation, the tools that are out there that, that, that people can use to automate things already are, are excellent. Like any firm, any lawyer could go on and automate whatever they wanted, basically, with, with what's out there. I think people maybe don't realize that. And so, you know, people are starting to realize it more. I think that they'll realize it more and more and more. And yeah, and again, that it'll be kind of this mix of machine human. And, you know, my, my analogy for that is that I use sometimes is uh, this analogy of what's referred to as centaur chess teams. It's kind of a maximally geeky analogy, but the analogy is roughly that, and, and, you know, AI is moving so fast now. I hope this metaphor still holds because I think it's a beautiful and kind of elegant metaphor. But, you know, at some point in the progression of AI chess playing robots versus pure human teams, what they started doing, and of course the AI teams started beating human teams 10 out of 10 times. What they started doing is pitting pure AI teams versus AI-assisted human teams. And they found that the results of the AI-assisted human teams was just far, far better than pure AI teams, right? Which, you know, leads me to believe that maybe there's still some place for humans 
in this in this whole landscape. Kimball, can you give me some validation towards that conclusion? I think that's right. I'm not really worried that like machines are going to replace humans. I, I, I think it's going to change the way, I think it's going to change what, what humans do. Again, they're going to do less of this grunt work and more judgment. I mean, that's, that's what humans are good at. They're good at judgment. That's, that's what machines have a very difficult time doing. And so I think there's always going to be a place for judgment in the law. What there's not going to be a place for is formatting document formatting that's should not be done by humans i think in the coming years that will increasingly not be done by humans but yeah i think it's this kind of machine human mix machine enabled kimball i can't think of a better place to end this episode of the podcast than with that comment i i think it's just extremely well articulated it really kind of distills a lot of i think the trends that we are starting to see and maybe the next 10 to 20 years of what we're going to see. And I think it's the perfect way to wrap up an episode of the Modern Lawyer podcast, which is focused on rapid change in the legal industry. So Kimball, I've completely enjoyed our, our conversation. As you could probably tell, I could talk about this for another few hours, but I know uh, you've got places to go, Kimball. So thank you for joining us on the Modern Lawyer podcast. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon. Hey, 